Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts. I am Dave Fletcher. With me is the ever-fashionable and brilliant Professor Luke Galen. Thanks. I'm glad you like it. And the stylish and brilliant Professor Jeremy Bean. Um, thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Both, both looking very snazzy today in your own way. I want to start out by giving a shout-out to our listeners out in Miami, in Toronto, in Germany, in Denver, in Finland in Kalamazoo, Michigan, in North Dakota, Biloxi, Missouri, Vancouver, and Australia, where I think we have more listeners than on any other continent. Wow. That was an awesome way of bragging. Yeah, well. It means a lot to us who are doing a show like this to know that people are out there listening and all over the world, too. Absolutely. really cool. It's very exciting. We're going to start off today with a little bit of sad news, actually. I'm sure you've all heard this, but it would not do to go without mention that we lost one of the greatest rational voices in our country, George Carlin, passed away a few days ago. George Carlin is one of the truly great atheist stand-up comics, I would say, and and broke a lot of ground in stand-up comedy, was a great voice for rational thought. One of the who's who in hell. Absolutely. Everybody should go and check out his clips, which should be available on, you know, YouTube, because I've mm-hmm. seen him on the internet. If you want to go through some of his good routines on religion and and uh, bullshit, and uh, he has some good. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. His his one on the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Uh, yes. The amended list of the Ten Commandments is classic, and yeah. I think another really good religious bit was he's going through the top purveyors of bullshit in American mm-hmm. society: yes. advertisers, politicians, and then he gets to religion, and it's it's amazing. He actually says in front of a huge audience, he says flat out, "There is no God. It's a ridiculous notion to believe in. No such being exists." And he gets applause. It's it's quite fantastic and, and sad to lose him, but glad that we have such a wealth of material from him to enjoy for generations and generations. Since it's Independence Day and everyone's waving their flags and bearing their crosses, we thought we'd talk a little bit about the separation of church and state. And at the forefront, as always, is the good reverend, Dr. James Dobson. Is he on the show today? Sadly, no. Oh. He has declined our invitations. Oh. On July 10th, I'm going to be taking a flight out to the lovely state of Colorado, spending some time in the Denver and Boulder area. And I was thinking, oh boy, it would be awesome to Take the short trip down to Colorado Springs, check out Garden of the Gods, and of course, focus on the family headquarters. Maybe I should take a recorder with me and see if I can see if James Dobson will do an interview. For a prayer retreat. That's how you could package it. We can have a prayer retreat. That's right. I seriously doubt that request would be granted, but sure it's would be nice fun. Notion. Ted Haggard talked to Richard Dawkins. I mean, who is James Dobson to turn down the Reasonable Doubts podcast? Yeah. Does he know who we are? James, do you know who we are? Probably not. The power that we wield. (laughs) And for good reason. I feel a particular humiliation with James Dobson because he's a developmental psychologist. He's he's one of my psyche – he's one of my peeps. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think his degree was what? UCLA developmental. Of course, he uses that as a springboard to expound upon all these non-scientific things with corporal punishment. So you know how to to fix homosexuals too? (laughs) Yeah. It's all scientific, folks. We'll have that in the future – Reasonable yeah. doubts. Well, well, I can take him to town on uh, But if there's any doubt as to James Dobson's intellectual credentials and how carefully stated all his propositions are, he recently criticized Democratic candidate Barack Obama of having a, quote, fruitcake interpretation of the Constitution. Mm, fruitcake. Is that a homosexual reference? I mean, I don't – what is that supposed Knowing to mean? Knowing Dobson, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Some sort of subliminal thing. Yeah. yeah. Fruit. 
Obama? Yes, this comes from the Christian Post. Nine times more Christian than the New York Post. James Dobson accuses Obama of distorting Bible. The article begins, as Barack Obama broadens his outreach to evangelical voters, one of the movement's biggest names, James Dobson, accuses the likely Democratic presidential nominee of distorting the Bible and pushing a fruitcake interpretation of the Constitution. Dobson said, I think he is deliberately distorting the traditional understanding of the Bible to fit his own worldview and his own confused theology. He is dragging biblical understanding through the gutter. And Dobson's criticisms were focused on a June 2006 address that Obama gave to a liberal Christian group called Call to Renewal. In Obama's speech, and you can find the full text online, I believe it's actually on his webpage. The whole thing is available. And there's a YouTube video of the clips of the speech that deal most specifically with church-state issues. I think the video is entitled Barack Obama versus Religion. Yes. (laughs) And when I saw the video, I got very excited. I thought this was fantastic. After reading the whole speech... I'm slightly less impressed, but I still think ultimately he's right on most of it. And, of course, you have to consider the audience that he was speaking to at the time. So he talks very much about his own faith. Regardless of how we could nitpick, you know, on the finer points of whether or not we would agree with his policy, some of the statements that he made during the speech, a lot of balls for somebody to say – Anybody who's in politics, even if he wasn't considering a presidential run when he gave that speech, and I'm not entirely sure that he wasn't, anybody who was making those statements, well, share them with us, Dave. He says that, quote, folks, and I'm sure Susan Jacoby is slapping her forehead as she listens to this, folks tend to forget that during our founding, it wasn't the atheists or the civil libertarians who were the most effective champions for the First Amendment. It was the persecuted minorities. It was Baptists like John Leland who didn't want the established churches to impose their views on folks who were getting happy out in the fields and teaching the scripture to slaves. It was the forebearers of the evangelicals who were the most adamant about not mingling government with religion because they did not want state-sponsored religion hindering their ability to practice their faith as they understood it. He also says that whatever we once were, we are no longer a Christian nation. We are also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, a Buddhist nation, a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers. Now, I don't know if I've ever heard a politician be quite that honest. Yeah, and then the gist of his argument, though, essentially is that if you want your religious principles to be heard in the public square, you then have to not only appeal to your little sectarian values, but also make a universal appeal, a rational appeal to why other people should be on board with your beliefs. Instead of just simply saying, it's my belief, you need to respect that. Therefore, it's right. And and then vote the way I want you to vote. He said, quote, Democracy demands that religiously motivated people translate their concerns into universal rather than religion-specific values. Democracy requires that their proposal be subject to argument and amenable to reason. To which James Dobson replies, Unfavorably, I'm guessing. Certainly. He says, Am I required in a democracy to conform my efforts in the political arena to his bloody notion of what is right? with regard to the lives of tiny babies. Bit of an emotional appeal there. Mm -hmm. What he's trying to say here is unless everybody agrees, we have no right to fight for what we believe. Um, I can see why that would be threatening to James Dobson because clearly having to justify your your principles on some sort of rational grounds would be threatening to anybody who's used to then getting a free pass by justifying them superstitiously or appeals to emotion or appeals to authority. Too, where does he get the idea that Barack Obama is saying unless everybody agrees on something, we can't make it a law? He's, he's simply saying that it requires that our proposal be subject to argument and amenable to reason. Giving reasons that others could accept, mm-hmm. secular, non-religious reasons or not exclusively religiously argued reasons. Right. Um, a democracy in no way suggests that 
decisions have to be unanimous. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's also the pro- – we'll, we'll read some quotes later when we do Founding Fathers stuff. But that could have been lifted straight out of Jefferson, Absolutely. Thomas Paine. That's all, essentially what they were saying too and that is, is that you – Abraham Lincoln even made statements on this that you have to subject your views to reason. You just simply can't say, oh, I'm saying this and it's sacred to me, so back off right. in the public square. Well, and another line from Obama's speech here that echoes back to the founding fathers and the argument when the Constitution was being ratified, he says, and even if we did have only Christians in our midst, if we expelled every non-Christian from the United States of America, Whose Christianity would we teach in the schools? Would we go with James James Dobson's or Al Sharpton's? Which passages of scripture should guide our public policy? Should we go with Leviticus, which suggests slavery is okay and that eating shellfish is an abomination? How about Deuteronomy, which suggests stoning your child if he strays from the faith? Or should we just stick to the Sermon on the Mount, a passage that is so radical that it's doubtful that our own defense department would survive its application. So before we get carried away, let's read our Bibles, which I'm a big advocate of. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, boy, I thought that was brilliant. And yeah. uh, on the one side, you can see how he's definitely throwing caution to the wind to really speak to things. I mean, quoting Leviticus mm-hmm. and pointing out some of the more disturbing things in the Bible that people wouldn't want to sign on to right now. And James Dobson's response to his Referring to Leviticus and shellfish, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. his, he was saying that's a fruitcake interpretation of the Bible. He's so, deliberately distorting the traditional understanding of the Bible to fit its own worldview. And he basically said, look, the, he's taking passages that are not supposed to apply to the church, Christian church anymore. The New Testament has usurped some of these Old Testament laws. But, of course, one of Dobson's favorites would be the homosexuality is an abomination, which is sandwiched right next to the shellfish. Yeah, and so go to the John Stewart clip, which brilliantly paired those together of Dobson saying, well, Leviticus is Old Testament, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes back to the tape on, I think it was Larry King, where James Dobson was asked Mm -hmm. about homosexuality, what the objection was. Well, Leviticus says, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just (laughs) hypocrisy could not be more... Yeah, clear yeah. on that one. John Stewart says, "Well, I guess that doesn't apply when it comes to homos." Homos. <laughs> and one of the other things that Obama does in this speech is brings up one of our very favorite atrocities in the Old Testament, which is the story of Abraham and Isaac, where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. That was the icing on the cake for me. He says, It's fair to say that if any of us leaving this church saw Abraham on a roof of a building raising his knife, we would, at the very least, call the police and expect the Department of Children and Family Services to take Isaac away from Abraham. We would do so because we do not hear what Abraham hears. We do not see what Abraham sees, true as those experiences may be. So the best we can do is act in accordance with those things that we all see, that we all hear be it common laws or basic reason. So an appeal, again, even to empirical reasons. Absolutely. Things we can see. And... and he's not saying that faith should be left out of the public square. He's not saying that people shouldn't have faith. In fact, he talks a great deal in this speech about his own faith and the importance of it. But he is saying that our laws, our government, should be set on things that we can all see, that we all hear, common laws or basic reason. Yeah. It's not too different from what Austin Dacey was saying. Dacey is not opposed to appeals to conscience. However, those appeals need to enter into the public square where we can have a rational debate about them. Right. Which is exactly what Obama's endorsing. And you could see why that would be threatening to people on the religious right or like Dobson there because they're used to, to having a free pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, on their ideas and simply say appealing, like we said before, to its tradition, it's the Bible. So uh, therefore, these policies, you know, like his his hysterical statement on the abortion thing, which, you know, Obama wasn't even talking about. Why should we have to justify our views on abortion? Everybody knows it's wrong. Well, if you're going to be talking in a public square, why? Explain how it's wrong, you know, and then then you have scientific information of each and every conception isn't sold by God, why are most of them spontaneously aborted? That's a scientific piece of information that's relevant to the debate. Mm -hmm. I want you to explain to me why God values each and every child and then kills the majority of them through spontaneous abortion if you want me to take your position Mm -hmm. seriously, that sort of thing. 
Now, but Obama doesn't just lay it on the line for religion. He also speaks to us secularists. He says, but a sense of proportion should also guide those who police the boundaries between church and state. Not every mention of God in public is a breach of the wall of separation. Context matters. And I, to some extent, would certainly agree with this. He goes on to say, It is doubtful that children reciting the Pledge of Allegiance feel oppressed or brainwashed as a consequence of muttering the phrase, Under God. I didn't. That, Senator Obama, didn't sit too well with me, quite frankly. Yes, you didn't feel brainwashed or oppressed by having to mutter under God. You believed in God. Yeah. How, how oppressed would he feel if he was forced to utter under there is no God? Right. Exactly. Which nobody's recommending, by the way. In, in that specific instance, too, um, something that's not mentioned also is how children can be identified and under group pressure when mm-hmm. when they stand out for something. When I was a kid reciting the pledge, I believed in God, had no problem with it. Uh, we did have a Jehovah's Witness in class who was who you know, required by his religion yeah. that he would not he would not recite the pledge. And he did receive, you know, a certain degree of verbal harassment for it. And that's something to consider. Now, I uh, maybe I'll be the odd man out, but I do have to agree a little bit with the sentiment, if only I, I get annoyed sometimes too by, I guess a way, better way of putting it is certain ceremonial displays of religion just uh, just doesn't get my anger level up the way it does some church-state separationists. Sometimes I feel like we should choose our battles a little more wisely. Sure. Like that's that's uh, some end game stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas certain things like a major issue would be the faith based initiatives and things like that. To mm-hmm. me, are far more insidious. And if we were to focus our energy on that and not wear people out on these other issues and uh, other issues like in God we trust on money, under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, that sort of thing, or. Uh, yeah, it's not that I don't take those things seriously. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm part of the reason why I'm angered by it is that it should have never changed in the first place. Right. E pluribus unum was a perfectly good slogan and is m- much more of one that matches our national history. And yeah, and and it is supposed to bring us together rather than one that is divisive. But well, that, as that's far a tactical as tactical objection, so you're object, you're not saying it's wrong to to bitch about those things. You're saying that just simply we should pick more important battles first. Absolutely. Right, well, that's, um, yeah, that's a tactical decision, I, yeah. not a strategic. Decision. I could agree with that. Yeah. And what Obama goes on to say after this is after under God, he says having voluntary school, student prayer groups, use school property to meet should not be a threat. I agree to that. That's almost a straw man argument because I don't know who's really, really advocating that that right. shouldn't shouldn't happen. But he's gaining some idiosyncrasy credit with his group. Obama's doing the tactful politician thing. He's really going out online criticizing uh, certain religious mentalities, and then he's right, right, he's trying and to show, hey, look, I'm an in group member. I can do this. Yeah, and he does even come out in favor of some of these faith based initiatives and say. And one can envision certain faith-based programs targeting ex-offenders or substance abusers that offer a uniquely powerful way of solving problems. Here I disagree. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's certainly a unique way of solving problems that doesn't make it a good way. It doesn't make it an effective way. And it certainly does not make it a way that our tax money should be going to. Yeah, and if you actually look at how a lot of these programs have been implemented it leads to a lot of abuses too. I would think he would be more sensitive to because the last I read about this, a strong case was being made that this was uh, that a lot of times the faith-based initiatives, uh, doing drug rehabilitation programs and stuff, that these were kind of more geared towards winning impoverished African American voters over to mm-hmm. Republican policies. Yeah, well, the, clearly the Bush administration's. Uh, was using the the federal coffers to also win sup- black support because through churches and things like that because they know that they dangle money in front of them and say hey we're with you on these programs to help your community it makes it hard for them to resist right and as much as I like Obama he's still a politician and he still has to take those things into account as well oh yeah nobody's doubting that I just can't wait till he's president so we can bitch about him. 
and I should clarify if anybody uh, misunderstood my statement there. I, I just mean uh, I want him to be president. It's just I hate being on the bandwagon. And so as soon as <laughs> – What is it about there? We're like – I'm uncomfortable with any successful movement. We're, we're so used to being loser, liberal, Democrat pinkos that – if we start to actually win one, we'll like deliberately fumble it so we can be on the you – know, Look, he's a moderate. As soon as he's in office, our job is to push him to the left. That's right. <laughs> I don't know if I speak for the rest of you on that. Cut his mic. Cut his mic. So a lot of the church-state arguments – come from this notion presented by members of the religious right and sometimes even the religious left that this is a Christian nation, that our country was founded on Christian principles. So let's take a look at that. Let's look at these claims that we live in a Christian nation and see what we come up with. Let's start at the beginning. And I'm not talking about the... Um, 6,000 years ago. Not... not Yes, 6,000 years ago at the beginning. Why don't we go back and take a look at the earliest documents that helped start our nation. The Declaration of Independence was, by the way, not a founding document. It's not the one that, that gave us a country, but it is the one that, well, basically told King George to stuff it. And that's, that's an important thing to remember because people will King George stuff it. Yes, stuff it, George. I think the they third. they axed out that part. Benjamin Franklin said, "Tom, you need to yeah, yeah. stuff it's, it." Is colloquial. It's we, a little we far. Want, we want to be uh, uh, the better man here. But in Jefferson's original draft, he says, "Quote: We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with inherent and inalienable rights." that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So he calls into the discussion a creator. There you go. It's a Christian nation. It's a Christian nation, right? We, we have a creator. Now, the interesting thing about that this is it's a very nonspecific deity that he's Calling they often refer to as providence. Exactly. It's hard, where do you worship providence? So Christian nation? I don't know. He doesn't mention Jesus. He doesn't talk of the Holy Spirit guiding them. It's a deist them. nation. It's a deist nation. And, and Jefferson was himself certainly much more of a Actually, deist. Uh, earlier draft, he, he said uh, not uh, self-evident, but these rights are sacred and undeniable. And Ben Franklin helped him ax that out. That's right. Obviously, what they were trying to work there is an appeal to as secular as basis as possible. Yes. We don't derive our rights from God from the consent of the governed. These rights aren't sacred or undeniable. They're self-evident. Right. All yeah. the, and there's many times where they were approaching religious language and they backed away from it. Yeah, this this is sometimes not appreciated by people on the right, and that is, if you really want to understand our founders and what they were thinking when they drafted these documents, you need to know more than just American history. Absolutely, you need to know European history. You need to know intellectual history, and if you look at it in the context of the Enlightenment, John Locke, going all the way back to Spinoza, Rousseau. Rousseau. Talk of natural law and the creator, basically the idea is that the scriptures – and Thomas Paine refers to this too – the scriptures that are reliable, that form a foundation for true theology, you'll sometimes hear the term, is nature, the book of nature. Right. And we discover through nature's principles certain unalterable laws and – the creator in a deist context is kind of the clockwork god who put that into being and set those initial laws and then flew away or something, didn't show much concern with his creator. And when you look at it in that context, it comes across much more secular than reading this into mm -hmm. a Christian context. But the other reason why it's important to evoke a creator, to evoke a deity in this document that, not again, not establishing the nation, just saying – screw you, King George, we are independent, is that King George was put on the throne 
by God Almighty. This is a yeah, very the important, divine right of kings. Yes, and for for them to take that and say that no, it's not the divine right of kings; it's the right of all men to govern themselves. It's very very important to evoke that idea so that we're we're talking the same language and just and changing it. Yeah, and in that context, the rejection of, of monarchy was seen at that time as being a rejection of God's order. Absolutely. Uh, and so the, the people who were the, like the most anti-monarchical were also the ones that were – the clerical church aspects were threatened by that. Right. Because if you, can kick, if you can overthrow a king who God put on the throne, hey, you could overthrow the church too. Yeah. The great chain of being is thrown into disorder when you, when you cast off the king as a king. But if you look at that superior revelation of of nature, human beings are not born in subservience to one another in a natural state, the argument would say, in the state of nature. Uh, was it Mill or Locke? That was probably Locke, I'm thinking. That was fond of, of that one. In the state of nature, you would not find this to be the case. So by that superior law, we see that the rights aren't granted by God to a particular king. The concept of rights gets expanded to all human beings. I, Christopher Hitchens made a point on that very well on an NPR interview that he did when talking about his biography of Thomas Paine. I think it was on All Things Considered. It's probably still out there that you could listen to. I'm sure. But he made a great point of, of saying we take this concept of rights, natural rights, for granted. But at a certain time, it was that divine right of kings that was the one right that we would appeal to as a human being having a right granted by God. And the real stroke of genius by these Enlightenment philosophers was to question that and to place the concept of rights as being universal. So the Declaration of Independence, while it does invoke a deity of some sort, cannot be called Christian, certainly, by any stretch of the imagination, nor is it really a religious document at all. It's a secular document. And you know what? It wouldn't matter if it, if it was. If it was covered Absolute. top to bottom with Jesus is great and all this other stuff, it still wouldn't make a difference because that's not the charter for our yeah, country. Exactly. If the Declaration of Independence said, Dear King George, Jesus says, screw you, which would be fun. But it still wouldn't matter because we have that other even more important document that comes along to establish what we are as a nation, our rules and governance. It's a little thing I like to call the Constitution. Yeah. Moment of awe, silence. Okay. So the Constitution, this is the one that actually created our nation. Is this a religious document? Is this a Christian document, Luke? I find God nowhere in that document, Dave. Really? It's interesting. <laughs> back to you. No, back to you. Any mentions of religion whatsoever in this document? None at all. Actually, that's Humble. incorrect. There are two. Oh. There are two mentions of religion in the document. Well, I'm sure they're pro-religion, aren't they, Dave? Well, let's take a look, shall we? Something about you need to be a Christian to run for public office and yes, yes, church and state are religious united. tests and there should be plenty of laws establishing. Am I establishing right? Are we the, right? That's, well, that's close. What it actually says is, and this is Article 6 of the Constitution, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. But Dave, if that were true, you could elect Jews, Catholics... That's just crazy talk. Infidels of every sort. Wow. I wonder if they knew what they were getting into. But of course, since they were all Christians, they just assumed that God was in the Constitution, right? You didn't even need to say it. Yeah, they didn't that... expect a Muslim like Obama. Wait. I knew it. It's so self-evident that God is really in charge of the country that they need not actually state it, right? So there must be no record at that time of anybody pointing out the implications of that. They just assumed that God was in Yeah, yeah religious people were all probably across the board pretty favorable to this document, yeah. not, not picking up I'm sure up it was. The same way that they were with Virginia's statutes on religious freedom too. Now, Susan Jacoby wrote a book. I don't know if you guys have heard of this um, called Free Thinkers. I thought it was Free Drinkers and then I was really disappointed. No, that's actually Hitchens' book. And in, no such thing as a free drink. 
in the book, she discusses uh, some of the arguments that were taking place around the time that the Constitution was being ratified. How did the um, religious folk take this? Not well, I'm afraid, Dave. They they pointed out frequently the implications of that. Uh, often they in the letters at that time, they said that God's punishment would be visited upon any country that doesn't specifically mention in the Constitution that's ties with the deity itself. They mentioned the implications of having religious people uh, running or having non-religious or different religious people mm-hmm. running for public office because at that time everything was a crazy patchwork of state laws saying, oh, uh, we're the Puritans in Massachusetts. Baptists get out. Oh, right. Jews especially get out. Quakers get out. So how the hell did we ever get this ratified if everyone was so upset and objected and I guess they must have appealed possibly to people's uh, future interest in having a stable nation without religious factionalism maybe. Or maybe reminded them of the religious violence of their Europe. former lands. The 30 years war with the Catholics and the Protestants, having people kicked out of various countries for choosing the wrong god. The other mention of religion in the Constitution is actually in the First Amendment. It's a little thing. Um that I like called the Establishment Clause. And Free Exercise Clause. And Free Exercise Clause. says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, in this First Amendment, which covers free speech, covers freedom of the press, the right to assemble, and the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances, what's the first one they mention? Redress? Uh, no. Separation? No. You're so close. Yes, the establishment of religion is the very first one in the First Amendment. Doesn't that sound like it was a pretty important thing to get out there? It does sound important. And in fact, according to Robert Boston, who wrote the book, Why the Religious Right is Wrong, about the separation of church and state. Wonderful book. Robert Boston points out that this establishment clause went through a number of different phases until it got to the one that we know and love today. Originally... I believe this is Madison's first draft, said, The civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief, nor shall any national religion be established, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience in any manner or any pretext be infringed. Now, the word national means, you know, central government. It still leaves the possibility of state religion. So it's a little bit more open. Maybe we should address that because many apologists for the notion of a Christian nation will argue, hey, look, they just didn't want one overarching religion. What they wanted was states' rights to choose which was their official religion. Right. How do we respond to that? Well, we we look at what the – when this got to the house, how they altered the language and they changed it to no religion shall be established by law nor shall the equal rights of conscience be infringed, and then again to no state shall infringe the equal rights of conscience. So now we're addressing the states. They're taking away my ability to discriminate religiously. Oh. Oh. How are we going to kick the Baptists out? And then, of course, it went through even more changes to Congress shall make no law touching religion or infringing the rights of conscience. And then again to Congress shall make no law establishing religion or to prevent the free exercise thereof or to infringe the rights of conscience. Now, when the Senate got a hold of it, they had three possible suggestions. Congress shall make no law establishing one religious sect or society in preference to others. Hmm. Congress shall not make any law infringing the right of conscience or establishing any religious sect or society. And thirdly, Congress shall make no law establishing any particular denomination of religion in preference to another. Now, Robert Boston says, The fact that these variations were defeated clearly indicates that today's opponents of church-state separation are wrong in stating that all the First Amendment was intended to do was ban the establishment of a national church. Were that the case, versions 1 or 3 of the above would have sufficed. Obviously, the Senate had something more far-reaching in mind. Through this process, they became more and more separationist separationist with their language of this they didn't they didn't soften it in fact madison's initial one is is quite weak and mm-hmm. is not a not an establishment clause i'd like to have 
Now, another derivative point to to share out of that is you, you hear this on both sides of the aisle. Conservatives and liberals will make these ty- types of arguments where we speak of what did the founders intend mm-hmm. uh, and we've, we've been using that language also. And I think an assumption that sometimes lurks in there that doesn't – that isn't correct is that somehow the founders of our nation were all of one mind of something. Right. You know, they clearly just all agreed on these issues and now today there's confusion about it. If we just returned back to their principles, whereas when you look at the debates that surrounded this and the several different drafts, I mean, it should be completely obvious they're no different than we are today. There are different politicians at that time had different views, but the one that won out in a democracy the one in the end that thankfully became enshrined in our constitution was the secularist. Mm-hmm. They often quote people and you hear from like some of the other kind of minor founding fathers you know, and that, mm-hmm. that, that have a more religious bent to it. But like you said, those were the, that was the losing faction. Mm-hmm. Those right. arguments were considered and they were voted down. Yeah, absolutely. And even uh, – So if somebody says the founders wanted A, B, and C, mm-hmm. you know, a great reply is just to say, well, which ones? One interesting thing that Robert Boston points out in this book is that Benjamin Franklin, who was one of the most free-thinking of all of the founding fathers, was the one who actually suggested opening Congress with prayer, which was, by the way, defeated. Well, wasn't he also suggesting that the prayer should be rotated among people, even like uh, different factions? He supported factions like you know Hindus and Mohammedans right. and all religion, different stripes of religion. Yeah, but but the argument against having the prayer was essentially something like we don't want people to think that we can't do it on our own. Yeah, yeah. Let's we not need to bring... appeal to the deity in order to to accomplish this. It was something. Uh, it's it's a paraphrase, but something to the effect of uh, let's not bring foreign aid issues into this. This debate. You often see when these quote wars, not, not only do they quote a lot of people on the losing side, but they often quote the major founding fathers' uh, statements about like Jesus and Christianity mm-hmm. specifically by saying, look, Thomas Jefferson says that you know, Jesus was a perfect example of ethics or that right. you know, Franklin and Madison said th- this and that about Jesus. But again, what, what you don't realize is that they were not stating that in a supernatural religious sense of Jesus as the Son of God says this to be true, right. uh, that they were often just quoting the ethical aspects of Jesus, not meaning, meaning that that should be the governing basis of the country because God says so. And, right, and maybe because they fail, apologists on the religious right, because they fail to make a distinction between somebody's political views and somebody's own religious and moral views, they're assuming that our founders didn't make those distinctions either, which is not the case. I don't care what Jefferson said to John Adams in their personal letters about his religious beliefs. Well, I do care because it's interesting, but it has nothing to do with our government. Mm -hmm. It doesn't – so what if Jefferson thought Jesus was the man? Okay, didn't make its way into our constitution. Can we mention the the Jefferson Bible that he created? Yeah, about about he took the uh, standard gospels and then took a razor to them and and edited all the stuff that he thought was uh, supernatural or like gunky miracles. with the miracles. Right. And if I could just read a quote of what he said, his purpose was to abstract what is really his, that is Jesus saints, mm-hmm. from the rubbish in which it is buried easily distinguished by its luster from the dross of his biographers and is separate from that as the diamond from the dunghill. Pretty freaking amazing that he was able to win an election to president. Yeah. Could you imagine uh, Obama's speech if he would have said, you know, that sort of thing today or even anybody else making any statement remotely approaching that the word of God is, you know, Jesus, every nugget from his mouth is the word of God. In Jon Stewart's fake American history textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it called? Just America. America. Yep. They have a section why they would not be electable today. <laughs> I'm quoting this from memory, but I believe Benjamin Franklin's, which he is odd because he never was elected. He, but well, he was elected to Congress. Okay. Kind of elected. Okay. Yeah. I, but yeah, I was just thinking presidency. Right. But uh, ambassador to France. Under Benjamin Franklin, they have something to the effect that he's in doubt as to the divinity of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then the, the tagline was, well, kiss those red states goodbye. 
<laughs> Benjamin just can't win the elections. Can I read another quote from, Abra- that, that, from Abraham Lincoln? This is one of my favorites. That's Jacoby true. quotes this one too. This is when he was making a speech to the, um, about emancipation to ministers. And he says, I'm approached with the most opposite opinions and advice and that by religious men who are equally certain that they represent the divine will. I hope it would not be irreverent for me to say that if it is probable that God would reveal his will to others on a point so connected with my duty, it might be supposed that he would reveal it directly to me. These are not, however, the days of miracles. I must study the plain physical facts of the case, ascertain what is possible, and learn what appears to be wise and right. Which is very similar to the sentiments in Obama's speech. Yeah, that you have to appeal to reason. Yep. And just as a final nail in the coffin to the argument for the Christian nation, we have one of my favorites, the Treaty of Tripoli. This is from 1797. Yeah, that's our smoking gun as secularists. Absolutely. I think. Was this drafted by was it Washington that was writing that? No, it was it was actually originally originally written by Joel Barlow. It was signed by President John Adams. Oh, okay. I, I would like to also preface this by making a brief statement to some of our religious listeners. We do still have religious listeners, which I'm very happy to say that we do. I I think a lot of times our religious listeners are probably leaning a little more towards the religious liberalism. Uh, Some are just fishing for other points of view, which is good. But I would like to bring up a great crossover with what you might learn in ministry, which is proper interpretation of a text. And that is you never substitute a vague meaning, a vague interpretation that requires figures of speech and metaphor and other things for a much clearer interpretation where something is stated literally and addresses the exact issue at hand. And here, I think our uh, religious apologists fighting for the Christian nation version should consider a little bit of intellectual integrity applying the same standard to their political hermeneutics. And here the Treaty of Tripoli is a fine example of that. Now, this is a treaty that was made with another nation, so this is a governmental document. And when was it uh, made? 1797. 1797. So very short. President John Adams, second president. By the way, if you haven't seen the John Adams miniseries, it's available on DVD now, and it's fantastic. Paul Giamatti is awesome. Anyway, the Treaty of Tripoli says, in part, As the government of the United States is not, in any sense, founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslim Muslims, it is declared that no pretext arising from religious opinion shall ever product an interpretation of harmony existing between the two countries. The United States is not a Christian nation any more than it is a Jewish or a Mahomedian nation. Well, I'm sure that the treaty just barely squeaked by the Senate, right? Well, you know, that's the interesting thing. It was actually unanimously unanimous carried in the Senate and signed by President John Adams. And this is as black and white as it gets. And Put this that is- on your flag and wave it. 1797, a lot of the members of Congress are still the people who signed the Constitution. These are the people who helped found our nation. This is just six years after the Constitution was ratified and the Bill of Rights. So this is, this is about as clear as it can get. Not in any sense founded on the Christian religion from the guys who founded it. I've actually never searched out the response from our historical revisionists as to what they say to that. Do either of you I guys? The only thing I've ever seen is that they say, "Oh, it's just a treaty. It's not one of you know. It's not a, a yeah. founding document. Yeah. So yeah. it's just some crazy wacko." Whereas they'll tout out Mayflower Compact and other things to try to. Yeah. And again, we're not trying to deny that there are Christian roots in our country. Absolutely I mean, not. The Pilgrims. They were Christians, not the kind of Christians you want to hang out with, but they were certainly, <laughs> certainly Christians. Certainly not if you were their denomination. But the country itself, the United States of America, was not founded on Christianity. Even if a majority of the people in the country right now are Christians, that doesn't make it a Christian nation because we're still a democracy. So take mm-hmm. that. Happy Independence Day to you. 
I don't know about you, but I'm feeling patriotic. Speaking of being patriotic, on our previous episode, we talked about, on our shit list, Keith and Sons Ford, who had the wonderful ad telling all of those non-Christians out there (laughs) to sit down and shut up. Well, as it turns out, Keith and Sons Ford... um, had a few complaints, many of which from our listeners. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. We received plenty of emails from you guys and uh, some great, great letters that you wrote. They issued a apology, I guess you would call it, shortly after the ad ran, and it said this, quote, For 15 years, Keith and Sons Forward has run ad campaigns that focus on current events, such as those damned atheists. No, that's not in there. We have chosen to do this rather than presenting typical car sales ads. You know, people screaming about low, low prices. We do this through an agency that develops the material and sends us a package of commercials to review. From this, we select commercials that we distribute to area radio stations. Frequently, we emphasize humor and patriotic themes, such as shutting the hell up. As we are located adjacent to two military bases... Public response over these 15 years has been hugely positive, often eliciting calls and visits from appreciative individuals. Regrettably, the commercial that has prompted the current objection to religious sentiment, under God, in God we trust, was not closely reviewed by our dealership before it went live. The commercial has been replaced. We apologize to all who were offended. It is Keith and Son's intention to support America and the freedoms that make this country great. Rick Keith, president. Now, did you did you find the apology in there? It's skirting that borderline between apology and excuse. Yeah, it's kind of a, sorry you were offended. So the ad agency said, hey, we got a bunch of commercials like that religious one you want to run. You want to look them over before you? No, just put them on the air. Yeah. And interestingly enough, they expect us to believe they pay an agency to write that. <laughs> well, it, but it gets they even should save their money. better, okay? So they, they offered this pseudo-apology, and then a couple of days later, they retracted it. They, they did? retracted their pseudo-apology. How did they retract it? How can you retract an apology? Well, they, they blamed the whole kerfluffle over their ad on the bloglodites, which is kind of clever. Bloglodites? Uh, although not really, yes. A troglodyte blogger? Um... <laughs> Rick Keefe, the president, said that, quote, I don't regret the sentiment at all. That's what we believe. They believe that people who disagree with them should shut the hell up. But if you're offended by what they say, well, that's free speech. So could I make a suggestion to them that they make a statement of belief for anyone who wants to come and shop and buy their cars and stuff? What should we believe before we, you know, shop? That we don't want to sully their lot with our that's right infidel well, beliefs. So which denomination? Uh, just is it just Jesus is enough, or what? Should they be specific? I think about that. Uh, apparently they believe in um, not having any sort of integrity or consistency on their positions. Why would God value that? He just wants belief. Okay, you can keep your integrity. Thank you, Pascal. So, Keith and Sons, by the way, feel free to keep sending them emails. (laughs) You can actually read the apology, and I believe there's a link to the retraction as well on our website from the previous episode in the comments. So, don't feel bad if you sent them a letter and then found out they apologized because uh, there's plenty more scorn to go around. That's wonderful. And now, another edition of Stranger Than Fiction. God arrested for selling crack cocaine. Yes, yes, it's true. In Tampa, Florida, God Lucky Howard, that is his name, was arrested by undercover detectives for selling cocaine in his neighborhood. Not just in his neighborhood, but by a church, a school, and public housing. Now, frankly, the only thing that really upsets me about this is what is God doing near a public school? (laughs) He's omnipresent, so he's got to be near all those things at once. I I suppose so. That must be rough when God's speeding, too, because, you know, he's always in a school zone. I can see why God would get, you know... 
hooked on crack. Uh, I mean, that's that's a difficult situation. Yeah. It's reassuring, though, because, frankly, in throughout history, crack is actually the least bothersome drug that he's been doling out. So, I mean, this is really a step up. Yeah, yeah. He's beat the opium market. Exactly. Uh, he's transcended that. Yeah. Makes me sometimes I wish I would work at like the hospitals that or wherever you register your kid's name and you know I'd like to be there for that you know mm-hmm. first name God yeah middle name Lucky what was the Lucky. rationale there like was the baby in the next bin Jesus or something is like well I gotta top that plus between God and Lucky they're kind of hedging their bets there on uh, they really you know. are <laughs> not surprising that he ended up being a crack dealer but apparently the police raided his house after busting him found an additional twenty two grams of cocaine is is that a lot. Uh, why are you looking look at, at me? It d- depends know. on the sentencing, uh, if it's crack versus powder, because we know the sentencing laws you'll get. You know, oh, that's it's more true. severe if you have crack that form, is true. grams of crack than powder. So they found 22 grams of cocaine and a scale, as the article points out. I, you know, he was checking to see if he was losing weight. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the story is. Oh, there. you don't know about drugs, no, do you? I, I, no, he was, he was uh, parceling out his But I'm not sure that possession of a scale is an arrestable offense. Oh, yes, it is, actually. Uh, scales are— it's intent to deal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh. Uh, even, even the type of bag that it would be distributed. It's hard to argue that it's just for personal use when you're having a scale there. Yeah. Well, you know what? That of hurt. course, it shouldn't be because any responsible drug user will carefully dose their uh, their supply. But, uh, you know, I have no personal knowledge. But, you know, it's nice to think because a lot of prisoners come to God in jail and now they, <laughs> they, they have a whole other opportunity. They can do it in the shower. Oh... All right. Well, on that horribly offensive and unpleasant note, we're going to leave you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to find us on Facebook. We have a fan page. We have a group, and we also have Flair. And on MySpace or our website, www.doubtcast.org. Email us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Coming up this fall, we're going to be doing a couple of episodes devoted to children and marriage, and in typical heathen fashion, we're going to have children before we have marriage. So those of you who have questions about child-rearing or about marriage or have suggestions... From a secular perspective. From a secular perspective, or have suggestions about how to do so, please send them our way so we can incorporate them into the episode and make sure we are addressing the questions and concerns and the perspectives and advice you have to offer. Until next time. Yeah, happy 4th to our American listeners and to our international listeners. Uh, We're trying to fix things over here. We're fixing them quick. Don't worry uh, about us. Don't mind our mess. Although it's still the 4th of July for them. True. It just doesn't carry the same weight. No. Enjoy. Episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission. Mm-hmm.